Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week, we give you the best news, views, and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the CEOs, founders, leaders and clinicians who are changing the world of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I am a founder and CEO of a health tech business myself called PocDoc. Um, regular listeners will know that PocDoc is a big supporter of the show. Um, PocDoc, uh, PocDoc, we are revolutionizing the way you can access a blood test by allowing you to do it with a smartphone or tablet, um, delivering digital health checks focused on cardiovascular disease predominantly, designed to increase access to testing, which is actually quite topical given today's guest. It's also, you know, different space, but similar mission, which will which we will get to. So uh, we've been away all summer. It's been wonderful. And now we're back at it. It's great to be back on the radio live. So hello to everybody. I hope that you all had fantastic summers. Hope you listened to a lot of UK Health Radio along the way. It's great to be back uh, live. There's just a difference. There's just a different feeling about being able to be live. Um, I love it. The producers of the show, we love it too. So it's great to be here. Um, we also just did a quick check of the countries, the number of countries that listen to the show and download the show on a monthly basis on the podcast channel. So that's Spotify, all of the others. We're up everywhere. And it's now up to 45 countries that download the podcast, which is kind of insane. So since this over, over the summer, we've added places like Kazakhstan, China, Morocco and the Philippines to our listener base. So hello to everyone listening from those locations. Thanks for joining. Thanks to everyone who's watching on YouTube. Uh, and thanks to everyone, obviously, who's listening live on UK Health Radio. We love Johan and the team. And also just one final piece of admin and we can get into the show. Every single UK Health Radio show, every single one is available on the UK Health Radio podcast channel, which is on all of the podcast platforms. So you can get our show directly through the Health Tech Hour channel, or you can get our show and all of the other great shows that UK Health Radio puts out on their own channel. So we are, so yeah, welcome to the the, the only and therefore leading live health tech show uh, on the radio. That's us in the world. So on to today's show is really topical, completely by chance, but very topical given um, which, which many of you may have seen today's, it was in the news all over the TV, all over the newspapers about a trial, UCL, University College London just published results of a trial comparing uh, the, the success rate in finding prostate cancer between uh, having an MRI scan and uh, a PSA test. So PSA, prostate specific antigen test is a blood test and generally considered to be the default option in screening men over 50 for risk of prostate cancer. So generally speaking, the, the acceptable level, the healthy level of PSA is somewhere between three and four, depending upon which guideline you use. There was a big trial that they looked at, which published its results today, which showed that actually using an MRI scan was a lot more effective in finding 
people with prostate cancer, men with prostate cancer, um, and actually found a number of men, 16% of people in the trial, which is a lot of people in the trial, who actually were discovered via MRI to have prostate cancer, their PSA blood test was actually negative or below a level that meant if they'd have just had that PSA blood test, their cancer would not have been found. Now, the big questions that this opens up, and to be fair to the people who run the trial, um, as well as NHS leaders and, and other healthcare people, the big question is now is the feasibility, ultimately, of running national screening using MRI on men over 50, um, given the way the health service is, and given the fact that MRI scanners are not exactly small, cheap pieces of equipment. But um, I think it's a really interesting segue into our guest today, who is Brian Plakis Chen, who is the CEO of OpenRad. Now, OpenRad is a remote radiology platform that is aiming to massively increase the efficiency and access to high-level scanning, x-rays, MRIs, all completely remotely to try and, I get, I would imagine, make it easier, faster, quicker, more cost-effective, um, and ultimately more successful for patients uh, to, to diagnose and therefore receive treatment for, for things. So it's very relevant given this, this study and also more widely through the, the issues that have been widely publicized in the UK, at least, around uh, backlogs for scans and access to scans and all these kind of different things. So, Brian, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. And like you said, very topical today, talking about imaging diagnostics. Um, it's great to be on your show. And I, I really appreciate uh, the, the stories that you're telling, I, I think. In healthcare, we really want to figure out how to innovate faster and take advantage of all the new tech that is is available. And how do we overcome some of the institutional challenges <clears throat> and some of the uh, you know healthcare system challenges that that essentially slow down or limit access to this advanced uh, imaging? So so thanks again for having me. No, it's, it's welcome. We love, you know, we, we've not had anyone really from the imaging sector, if you like, on and certainly no one with your sort of mission. So let's like back up the truck slightly and, and, and go straight into something that you just mentioned, which is like um, this this idea that healthcare is hard or health tech is hard. So it's something that gets thrown around a lot, obviously, and and um, I guess there are different reasons for it. But what, what is it particularly that, that, that you view as some of those obstacles and challenges? Yeah. And it, it, yeah. and so, so I'm a technologist. Um, I've spent you know, most of my career in internet technology mm -hmm. or cloud-based technology, applications that run on servers in the cloud or on, in the internet. Um, and obviously, there's many barriers or challenges on adopting innovative cloud technology in the healthcare space. Um, you, have, you, know, you see so many innovations happening uh, there's rapid advancements in AI, for example, right? And how do we apply these tool sets uh, to the imaging space, right? And what are the barriers that are preventing that from happening? And a lot of it has to do with the inertia of the infrastructure that's there today, right? A lot of the software that's, that's utilized in healthcare are, are legacy systems that could be 8, 10, 12 years old. Uh, they run on premise and they weren't designed for this like open collaborative, adaptive tech world we live in today. And they're not a, it's not an easy lift to, to basically pull these systems out and replace them because they're mission critical to, to public networks, healthcare networks, to mm. hospitals, to clinics that run yeah. them. Are you able, to, inertia, right? so are you able to even like to that point, we'll get into 
imaging and what that means and everything in a second so don't worry don't worry listeners we'll unpack all of that but just to the point that you were making like there's these big giant machines whether it's an x-ray machine an mri i mean if anyone's had an mri i'm sure lots of people have that thing is a beast of a machine in there i mean that really is a behemoth in there i'm sure it will get smaller and so on and so forth but but right now they're pretty big things so the software that you're saying that runs them is effectively kind of embedded right and it may be a bit so are are is it fit for purpose? As in, in theory, can it be made to integrate with cloud things, cloud systems, or is it just a no hoper and it's sort of, you've got to strip it all out and then you take an MRI scanner out of action for goodness knows how long and where 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 are we with that? Do you yeah, think? So, so a couple of things like, so, so, you know, if we were to break down some of the barriers, right? One is the legacy software that um, basically does the sharing and the collaboration and the reporting of the images. That's clearly one piece. You have storage systems are called, uh, PACS systems, and you know, I'm happy to spend a little bit of time and walk uh, your audience through it, but that's a picture archiving and communication system. That's where these digital images are actually stored once you do a scan. So, you know, you have these expensive machines that you're talking about, um, you know, and, and there's obviously uh, set up in centers. Uh, more and more, they're in clinics these days. You used to have to go to a hospital, but more and more we have like a community diagnostic centers, and not only can you get blood tests, or x-rays, but you can get, uh, you know, MRIs as well. And once these images are created, uh, they're stored digitally on the machine. And, you know, you think of like, uh, maybe like a scanner in your house stores things in PDF. In the imaging world, they're stored in DICOM. So DICOM is like the standard format of images, similar to like PDF, right? And they're very, they're very um, complex, three-dimensional images with slices in them. Um, if you can imagine, there's also metadata attached to that DICOM file that might have the patient record, uh, what machine took the image, uh, operator information, et cetera. And that's all passed along the image. It's picked up at the, at the um, scanner and then sent to a PAX, a server okay. somewhere. And then that image has to be accessed by a radiologist where they're yeah. actually going to do a report or a diagnosis of the image. And so there's many places to introduce technology friction um, in that food chain. And so like, is there, I feel like I love, this is exactly why I love doing the show because we just like dive straight in. None of the journey, none of that stuff. Let's just get straight into it. So is it normal? Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I guess our normal listeners will understand that I do this sometimes. So, you know, here we go. One of the reasons why you listen to the show, I guess. The um, Is it normal that one provider would provide the hardware, i.e. the scanner, and then the subsequent software journey across all of those different bits and bobs versus providers coming in and being able to say, right, I'm, I've got a better storage solution. I've got a better viewing and diagnosis solution. I've got a better radiology, um, you know, viewing platform, so to speak. What normally happens? That's a great question. So if you think of like the evolution of tech, typically at the early stages, you have the main provider, say it's uh, Siemens, Canon, Philips, um, uh, GE, they provided a turnkey solution. And obviously, yeah. most of these companies are hardware companies, and their specialty is really these magnificent uh, feats of engineering, right? Yeah. These diagnostic machines. Um, you know, but typically, software really isn't their expertise. And so maybe the version ones of the solution are not full featured. Um, they they are, obviously aren't cloud based. Maybe they didn't handle AI capabilities. Yeah. Maybe people couldn't access the image when they were uh, away from the facility, maybe in their office 
or at another site. And then over time, you started getting specialists in each of these areas. So you got, uh, for example, um, uh, in the area uh, called RIS, and a RIS is a, a radiology information system. It's kind of like a CRM for patients. Of, you know, a whole segment developed around patient records, right? Yeah. A whole segment developed around a PAC. So this is the, the storage system. And where we really focus is a new area. It's really the workflow systems. And what's really cool about our approach is that we can basically add a layer of software on top of these legacy systems that bridge them to the cloud. So you don't have to throw everything out. You don't have to get rid of all that storage, but yeah. we can add workflow <clears throat> and collaboration software that sits on top of these systems, connects them all together. You might have a Siemens over here, Philips over here. You might have one RIS vendor over here, a different PAX vendor over there. And we actually are the glue that connects those systems and allows people to collaborate irrespective of the underlying technology. And so this is like an evolution that happens, I think, in all different segments. It's kind of the third wave where yeah. you have these integrators come in and add workflow that works across disparate systems. That makes sense. Yeah, I think you see that cycle in different areas. And I guess the point that you're making is that in healthcare, it's slower that 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 movement through those cycles so you don't get to the point in phase two or phase three where you have real people focusing on very specific parts of that value chain or patient chain or workflow or whatever you want to call it to really create a best-in-class service for that particular thing that's right so you have a couple issues right so one issue is you know obviously it's not in the interest of the incumbents or the legacy providers uh, to really open things up and make that easy. Now, no. uh, there are standards like DICOM we mentioned for images. There's another standard called HL7, which allows the integration and exchange of data between these different systems. And so once you have some standards, like think of like email, you have this thing called SMTP, and yeah. it makes all the email systems talk to each other. HL7 does a similar type of function in the imaging world. You now can put software that can collaborate and access uh, confidentially patient records across different systems. So if you went scanning to one center, but you show up at a different clinic uh, to, to, to get your diagnosis, that doctor may want to pull up that, that uh, report, but also maybe priors you had at other facilities and bring them all together. And our software enables that type of uh, image sharing. And then of course, collaboration, not only with the patient, but maybe with a specialist or a referring uh, physician, physician. Okay. And all of that together sort of does, what, what's the, the big, so what, that really helps deliver? Yeah, so, so if you think about the big challenge, obviously there's capacity of the machines, right? Yeah. Are there are enough slots available. Think of like planes flying. The MRIs are like airplanes with seats. And yep. each slot is a seat on the airplane, right? So obviously you need the cost of those machines to come down um, so that there's more of them. They're more, it's more inexpensive, it's cost effective uh, to get the scans. That's the, that's the first thing. The mm -hmm. second thing, though, is you need people who can actually do the diagnosis, right? And so yeah. obviously, as you're increasing the number of scans, you need to increase the number of people who can do reports or make that much more efficient so a single expert can handle more and more uh, reports in a given period of time. Mm -hmm. And so our software is, is essentially the glue or the rails that allows you, say, for example, you're uh, a radiologist who works at a hospital, but maybe after hours you want to pick up 
you know, some extra money, but also do some extra reporting, you can now work at six and nine from your home and get access securely uh, to, to an inventory of scans that are awaiting diagnosis. And in okay. the old days, you had to physically be at the hospital or at the clinic. Now we can basically have an inventory of scans that need reports and make them available to qualified radiologists, irrespective of location. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Because why does a radiologist have to be in a physical location to look at a scan, in effect? So that makes sense to me. So just to go back a couple of steps, when we talk about imaging and radiology and so on and so forth, it includes what? X-rays, MRI? MRIs, right? CTs, exactly, right? So yeah. exactly, right? So, so, and it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's an interesting discussion. You talked about the news report today. Um, you know, what is the best type of diagnostic tool? And one of the challenges is sometimes a better tool seems more expensive because the initial cost is high, but maybe over the overall, you know, during the entire care cycle, maybe having a, you know, a better diagnosis earlier, not only gets a better patient outcome, it also might be much more cost effective, right? And these are the kind of things we're working through. PSA is a good example People with prostate cancer, they've had false positives for years. Yeah. And then obviously, right? And you get yourself all worked up and then you have to go in. So we, um, we, we, at PocDoc, we, we looked quite hard at PSA. We, and we still get asked about it all the time, actually, from various different people. And, you know, for the, the, the false positive thing for us was just, we just couldn't really get, we can't, well, can't get past it at this point. You know, I think it's just, and, and again, for everyone listening, those of you that, may or may not be experts in PSA and, and prostate cancer. And Brian, jump in if, if I get this wrong. But historically, the issue with the PSA test is that having an elevated PSA, prostate-specific antigen, doesn't necessarily mean that you have prostate cancer. So there are individual fluctuations. There are fluctuations longitudinally, i.e. over time. Um, the kind of, and so that has created people getting their PSA tested has created potential um, false positives. So people that thought they might have prostate cancer, but didn't. So um, different stats fly around, but some of the tests claim, you know, something like a 50% false positive, Mm. right? So, you know, I I think where we came at it, which again, you know, we, we we would not do anything, I don't think, until we had pretty solid clinical backup on this, particularly not in light of like news stories today, right, where, where, you know, you'd have to feel pretty confident, would be like some kind of longitudinal tracking of PSA, so that you could establish, well, look, if, if someone's baseline is this, then elevation of X above baseline would be cause for concern. But just like spot testing, yeah, it's it's problematic. Yeah, I mean, you can also trend over time, right? So, so ideally, maybe you're getting data points uh, that are painting a picture over time. And obviously, we don't want to deter people uh, from getting these diagnos- diagnostics. But, you know, in a perfect world, right, we would all be able to get access to the right type of uh, diagnostic and, and the cost and, and accessibility uh, wouldn't be an issue, right? And so, you know, clearly our mission, right, is to really uh, drive the affordability, the accessibility, the quality of diagnostic imaging so that we can lower the barrier uh, to using it in more of these types of use cases. Exactly. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So we are going to stop for a break now, first commercial break, and then we'll come back. And then when we come back, Brian, I want to jump into this area around um, backlog. So um, I know that you guys are based in the UK and in Germany, I believe. Um, and so 
there's obviously a huge amount of and has been going on for ages around the NHS backlog, which is going up, not down. And I think diagnostics within that, in the broadest sense, is is, is one of the areas. And I want to sort of understand your view on the backlog around scans and also trying to understand, like, so I think that there's 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 still a real misunderstanding around why it exists and why it takes that long and what happens and the issues around scheduling and the complexities and all these different things. So I think it'd be interesting to kick that around if that's OK with you. Not that you can go anywhere, but but, I you know, I figure I'd make it look like I was asking. <laughs> Sounds great. All right, great. Well, we'll be back in two minutes after this short break. The station that makes you feel good. Apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with Rosie, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. Once upon a time, human slavery was just a fact of life. Right now, animal abuse is often considered normal. In time, it won't be. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour, our first Health Tech Hour back live after the summer break with uh, obviously myself, Steve Roost, CEO of Poktok and um, host of the Health Tech Hour. And my guest today, Brian Plakis Cheng, who's the CEO of OpenRAD, which is a next generation um, diagnostic radiology platform, cloud-based platform to increase efficiency and workflow through um, better access to, to imaging. So, Brian, for the break, we were kind of digging in and around some of the structural issues and trends in this space around radiology and imaging. And, and, and I said that I wanted to dive into this area of backlogs. So obviously, it's been in the news for a really long time, headline around how difficult it is to get seen, scanned, diagnosed, etc. What's your view from your particular point of view, which is obviously radiology and imaging and things like that? What's your view around how it's going and some of the reasons for that, maybe some of the things that people don't really understand about why there's such a backlog. Yeah. So, so if you look at the kind of the, the value chain of imaging, obviously the first issue, right, is just having uh, facilities that have availability that are nearby. Right. And so there's obviously been a big shift over the last two decades, depends what market you're in uh, moving from like a hospital would typically have an MRI. They're really expensive equipment. Um, you know, you need to have some skill to maintain and operate them. And over the last, say, decade or so in many countries, we've been moving to more like a community diagnostic centers or clinics where mm-hmm. now you can, you can easily you know, get access to imaging, uh, expensive imaging uh, hardware in, in an area nearby, uh, relatively convenient and comfortable. Right. And so the first aspect is just 
you know, is there enough capacity with these expensive devices, right? And, and each country is going through a different type of adoption curve and availability around the machines themselves, right? And that's obviously the facilities, the hardware. You obviously need expertise in terms of operating that machines. You need uh, technicians, et cetera. Once that is all in place, you still have another barrier where you need experts that actually can diagnose those images, right? And so right. those images are getting generated. You might have in a, a given center on one machine, I don't know, maybe two an hour, three an hour, you're generating say 20, 25, 30 uh, or more uh, images per day that need to be diagnosed by an expert, right? Mm -hmm. And so the next challenge is, do you have sufficient capacity in the medical system with doctors that are credentialed uh, and that for that specific area, that specific facility uh, to, to basically tell you what's going on with your image, right? And right. This, is, this is the second area of backlog, right? So the first is just access to the physical machines, having enough machines. Uh, the second one is having enough radiologists that can do the reporting. And this is getting compounded, you know, like say countries like Germany, which historically have had, uh, had uh, many qualified radiologists, they're retiring. And what's happening in the pipeline is people are afraid that AI is going to take their jobs. And so oh, really? you're starting to see this phenomenon. And I think it's something we really need to push against in the industry is that AI is not going to take these jobs. AI is going to be a productivity enhancer. It's going to yeah. be a multiplier, right? So when you talk about you know, the backlog, there's several ways to solve the backlog. One is to get people, obviously, that are available but not physically near the machines to be able to do remote reporting. And yeah. so a big mission of our company is to make it very easy for doctors, no matter where they are, as long as they're credentialed and qualified, to be able to do reporting anywhere at any time on just about any device that has the required high resolution monitor. And what's really great about this is once these images are in, the, in, our, in our cloud, we stream them like a Netflix movie. You right. don't need any special software. And suddenly now, you know, a doctor who's available that's credentialed can now get access and do a diagnosis. And so what we're trying to do to solve the backlog is, one, bring, bring more people into, uh, you know, in, into the work uh, resource pool. That's yeah. one aspect. Also, potentially, some of them can work, and it depends on which markets this <clears throat> is allowed, as freelancers. And then they can work off hours on the weekends or the evenings, and that can be extra capacity or extra labor supply. Um, and there's yeah. actually some places where they're doing tests where they're leveraging uh, resources in other countries as remote. And again, having workflow that runs in the cloud is really the key enabler. And what and, and what um, uh, there are obviously going to be people, healthcare systems that are further ahead and f further behind. But is it sort of do, do you think that there are enough radiologists in, in the system to do is look because what you're talking about there is effectively evening out, smoothing out the supply and demand, you know, deference or delta, which makes sense, right? You've got at some point you've got more radiologists with availability over here and more scans over there, and you can sort of pull it, which which makes sense. Um, but do you think that there are enough radiologists in the system to be able to cope as long as you allocated resource more efficiently? Well, I, I, I mean, if you look at if you look at the the productivity of radiologists, it's all over the place. Like you have people that are just, you know, that that are that are doing high volumes of reports every day. 
You have other people that are doing lower volumes. How much of that is preference? How much of that is access? Um, right. that, that's not entirely clear. But what we want to do is make it so that access is not an issue, right? And so mm -hmm. no matter where you are, if you're qualified and credentialed, you can do the reporting. And that <clears throat> is the first barrier that can get removed. The other barrier then is obviously productivity. Can you give tools that actually increase productivity? For example, can you improve the quality of the image uh, so that you, know, you kind of defog or make the image more clear? Uh, can you provide tools that are more, that are easier to use that have a better user experience? Um, and this is where I think AI is really useful. Can you perhaps do a pre-process or a first pass with AI so you can flag artifacts and kind of pre-populate yeah. And so the radiologist can do like a final review and a final report and not have to do so much of the keystroking themselves. Because there's a huge amount. I mean, there's a, obviously a huge amount of funding and a huge number of people who are in this space of um, AI, particularly MRI, image analysis, AI diagnosis. And, you know, all of them seem to be publishing positive results. I guess you probably they probably wouldn't publish results unless they were positive. So you don't know what you don't know. But um, is do you? It sounds like your view on those is that yes, that's all well and good, and yes, that's great, and that's definitely like net positive. But it needs to be incorporated into a system where we don't exclude human qualified people. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one obviously we're still in the early days, but we're seeing really rapid advancement in AI. I'm sure as a consumer, everyone's familiar with like ChatGPT yeah. and what's happening there. <clears throat> We're seeing similar type of, of development <clears throat> on the, on the, meta, the uh, in the medical field as well. The challenge there is the use case, right? Because, for example, one use case is if you have a backlog of images, maybe you should focus on the images that are highest risk, right? That, that are potentially most problematic. And yeah. if you can use AI as like a triage, and go through the backlog and identify the images that really need attention, that already can really help the system focus on the people that need urgent attention, right? So that, that's an example of a use case yeah. of AI. Another use case, like I said, is doing like a first pass, right? So in that, in that scenario, you basically have um, kind of a smart reporting capability where the AI is actually going in, identifying the artifacts, and then perhaps making a set of suggestions or, or recommendations that could be reviewed by a human. So that's a second use case. A third use case, could, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. A third use case could be like a quality control where you're using the AI to kind of do an audit or a review, right? To just kind of do a, a, a check uh, to make sure that all the fields were filled out or you know, at a high level that we feel like this was an accurate diagnosis, right? So this is another use case um, the challenge with AI, though, is for each, you know, whether we're doing, say, uh, lung or brain or breast, they need different algorithms, right? And so the challenge, if you're selling AI technology, you need a way to aggregate large numbers of images to one place so you can apply these different tools to different types of images, right? Yeah. Um, and so you'll have my, maybe if you have a collection of 10 tools or 20 tools, you have to make it really easy to plug those tools into yeah, a platform. Right. Yeah, right? you can't be you can't be asking or expecting people to go out and figure out the right tool. Like, oh, it's a I'm doing breast cancer today. I need to find the breast cancer AI. 
Like exactly. you're, you're, yeah, you can't be doing that. That may, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That makes total. That's sense. that's where we can, you know, once you start putting this stuff in the cloud, then we can be kind of the mediator between the AI tool vendors and the radiologist, and we can figure out based on uh, the, the the tissue type what what tool is appropriate, apply that tool, and we can actually run it before the radiologist even brings up the scan, right? And so yeah. these are one of the advantages of having, um, you know. The, the reports, I mean, the scans in the cloud. Yeah, and like it all kind of flows back through. So this is um, this is another kind of thing that I think maybe it gets a bit overlooked. I don't know, but but we've certainly sort of circled, like people have mentioned this to us a little bit, which is sort of why don't you use more AI in what you do sort of thing, right? And where we all keep coming back to is like, well, if, if that AI forms part of a diagnosis, that AI is a medical device. So you then need to go through the process of registering as medical device, demonstrating it, and 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 that process. There's an element of of particularly with these with these LLMs where it seems to be hard to be able to work out how the black box in the middle works, which is kind of problematic for regulators. You know, exactly. Yeah. Like exactly. You, you you can't. Well, the, as the way I'm not a regulatory expert, but we've been through, I've been through it quite a bit. The way I read it is like you can't really say that it's a black box you need to be able to trace an input through to an output and then in reverse and back to an input. Like you can't just be like, well, 98% of the time it seems fine, but we're not really sure why. It's almost like you need another expert telling you what they see. Right. And so, right. And that's, that's, that's why it's, it's quite difficult. Right. And, and so when we talked about this idea of the backlog, you know, part of it we talked about was the imaging devices, the centers, the capacity, uh, the slots that are available, right? And that's one part of it. The other part of it we talked about was the radiologist, right? And and one, if we decouple the location so the radiologist can be anywhere, obviously they have to be credentialed, you know, qualified and credentialed, then you can tap into this resource pool irrespective of location, right? And that can be really important, for example, in an emergency room where you might need access to a specialist after a car accident, you're not going to keep all these specialists available, but they might be on call. And then suddenly you can bring them on and let them very quickly get access to an image that's already been streamed up into the cloud. Right. And so this is really important to be able to access the third part we talked about is driving productivity, right? It's like, how can you make the doctors more efficient so that we don't just need more doctors, but we can help them be more productive but well, then the other element is a higher quality. If your plan is to hire more doctors and more radiographers and more radiologists, like that's not a quick plan. Like that'll take years, years, right? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a big. I mean, my mum was a radiographer for thirty years in the NHS, and you know she towards the end of her time there was already this was she probably retired. She won't thank me saying this, but probably ten years ago, and. um she, you know, even then she was communicating to us and us about how the, the difficulty in finding entry level radiographers and people to come in at the bottom that would then move up. Right. Like, so if you don't have anyone in the bottom, then obviously you're not going to end up with anybody at the top. So um, what, one question I have is if this idea that um, so we come across it before on the show in a different space with a, a business called oh, Locum's Nest which is um, founded and run by an amazing guy called Ahmed Sharabani, um, who's been on the show a couple of times. And they are a workforce solution, NHS workforce solution. He's a doctor. And the the main challenge that they were trying to solve for was that in one 
NHS ICS trust. There was a surplus of a particular type of clinician. But then literally across the border in the next county, there was a deficit of that particular type of person. But because of the way that these the contracts were set up, that person was unable to go across and work in that, even though it might be 10 miles or five miles, all within the NHS. So that was a long running battle that he eventually they eventually won through. And so I guess that leads me to my question now, which is how set up do you believe the healthcare system is in any country, pick a country? not trying to pick on the NHS at all, open to this idea of that sort of workforce, flexible, um, remote type solution in this in this space, because it made complete sense to me. And I could see it being a big selling point to try and get somebody into this area, you know, or, or to try and improve someone's work-life balance or however you would phrase it, right? I think it's a great way. I'm just not sure quite how receptive they might be at a well, system level. You know, typically they require um, a kind of a middleman that acts as a credentialing agency, right? So okay. um, there's a huge field called teleradiology. And there's oh, okay. it's been, it's been around yeah, for decades in the UK. The UK is actually a very, I'd say, a, a leader in this area, uh, really opened up the ability for people who might have a primary job at a certain facility to sign up with a teleradiology firm after hours, right? And Ooh. then the question, so the teleradiology firms, they're our clients, right? And they need a platform that can integrate and connect to all these different hospital systems, these MRIs. And then what's really cool is they put the radiologists on the platform. We have an inventory of work that gets sorted or filtered by their credentials. And right. then based on their availability, they get assigned work based on, there might be um, a criticality, how urgent it is, or maybe there's an SLA that says it's due in 48 hours. And we make sure that, you know, the qualified doctor gets to it within the SLA, right? Okay. And then, like you said, there could be different contracts. You don't want the radiologist to know where care on this contract, the format, the reporting format looks like this. And then yeah. this contract. So we take care of all of that, right? right. And we're particularly adapted dealing with the flows across organizational bound boundaries. So maybe there's a scanning center over here. You're sending it to a hospital over here with a radiologist over here to a revert to a referring physician in another city. Right. And we can help that image get shared, uh, diagnosed and collaborated across that complex network of providers. That makes sense. Um, so do you think that right now that there are enough because there's obviously still a backlog and so is it is it around just is the bottleneck the number of machines or the efficiency of booking people onto the machines or is it the, just the sheer volume of people or is it the kind of where those having enough radiologists to view those reports and make the, the follow-through to kind of clear the pipe yeah it, there's no like one bottleneck in the sure. factory you know it's like an all of the above kind of problem and so you yeah. really have to tackle it um, so if you look at like um, appointments, right, there's there's different companies out there that now help you search on the web. Like, you know, for example, in France and Germany and Italy, there's like a doc, Dr. Lib, for example. I think you have scan.com in the UK and they basically help patients find uh, slots and centers. Right. And yeah. so that, that's a good example of technology making that easier, lowering the scheduling friction. So that's one example. Right. Um, Ideally, your information gets populated into that RIS system, that patient information system. Um, you show up at the center, you do your scan. Um, you know, we have the ability to pick that up and then route it, say, for example, to a teleradiology firm that's outsourced, is hired as a reporting 
agency um, on behalf of a hospital or a clinic that's actually doing the diagnosis, right? And I would say that is, uh, obviously the machines are expensive, uh, but you can build more machines. Obviously building facilities isn't cheap, it's not fast, but you can do that, you know, say at five, 6% per year. The challenge has been obviously with radiologists, not only do we need more of them, uh, we also have people retiring, so we have to replace them as well, right? Yeah. So in the short term, being able to access uh, radiologists and radiographers remotely is greatly extending the resource pool, right? So that's one aspect. The other one is time shifting. If they can work off hours or on the weekends for extra money, that's another way of increasing the pool, yeah. right? But ultimately, we have to bring more people in. And so I want to send love to the radiology community and say, look, this is a great field. Um, Don't be afraid of AI. AI is going to help make you more productive. It's going to help you be more impactful. It's going to help you have better quality. Um, But it's not going to take your jobs away anytime soon. Yeah, I think that that's like. If that's I did, I didn't realize that there was already evidence of people selecting out of a career in radiology due to fears of ai um because that i mean that's 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 wildly the wrong interpretation there of 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 that so that's kind of like a law of unintended consequences about everyone getting very excited about ai which is it kind of puts people off even bothering to apply which then creates all kinds of problems well, a good example is like in software development, right? People say, well, AI is going to take software developers' jobs, right? And the truth is it makes developers more productive. Some developers say they're three times more productive or five times. But the truth is we don't have enough developers. If you look at job shortages, there's simply not enough, right? So yeah. even if you get 2x or 3x, you're still not enough, right? And I would yeah. say in reporting, it's the same thing, right? So you know, if we make you 50% more productive, that's still not going to be enough uh, to handle. Like you said, if it turns out that MRIs are giving better diagnosis than PSAs and we can bring that cost point down, we're going to do more more and more scanning, right? And we're going to need more. Yeah, more like ima- ima- imagine if like suddenly they're like, right, we want to do a national PSI, a national, everyone, over, men over 50 get an MRI scan once every, I don't know what it would be. I'm not sure. Five years. I've no idea what would be sensible. Two years, Right. There's a lot of men over 50 in the UK. <laughs> That's a lot of scans on top of where we already were, right? And then suddenly they'll figure out that there might be another program to do this and to do that and to do that. And it's just, you you, you would you would want, if that's the right clinical solution, you would want that to be feasible and not be prevented because of non-clinical issues, exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. That That would suck, basically. I mean, in a way, it's kind of that's kind of a tragedy, right? That where you have the technology, but because it's expensive or there's a limited supply, it's becoming a barrier to providing better care, right? And I think a big part of innovation in almost any industry is over time you want to ride that cost curve down, right? Because technology gets cheaper over time. Uh, you apply better production techniques. You get uh, new technology approaches. You get better software. You have AI. All those things bring down the cost and we want to see the medical uh you know industry benefit from that cost curve right and as yeah. we do then you can use imaging more and more as a better diagnostic tool makes sense right my producer is yelling at me we have to go to the final commercial break of this week's show so um, we will be back in two minutes 
with my guest today, Brian Packers Chang, the CEO of OpenRad. We will be back in two minutes. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. We've been doing this for over 40 years. Every year, more and more people are living satisfying lives completely cruelty-free. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. The station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to the final part of today's show with me, Steve Roost, CEO of PopDoc and host of the Health Tech Hour and my guest, Brian Plakis-Cheng, the um, CEO of OpenRad. Okay, Brian, so normally we do this like at the beginning of the show, but we got carried away with ourselves. So what let's go back like a thousand steps and um how, how did the business open red come to be what, what 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 happened how did it all come together yeah so so um open rad um is a private equity back uh back company uh it's essentially a, a roll-up or a combination of of two leading pioneers in the imaging space so um mark hole which is one of the uh, oldest private equity firms based in london um um built OpenRad by acquiring a company called Visbian, and they were leaders in, in basically DICOM, uh, both in static centers, but in uh, fleets of mobile imaging trailers. And how do you get these images off of trailers? How do you manage these trailers? How do you monitor these, these MRI trailers? Um, so Visbian, they acquired, um, and then at the other company, which was really the cloud software, the workflow so- software was Biotronics. And these companies have been around 15, uh, 16 years and they've really been pioneers in doing cloud-based imaging. And it's just taken the industry, I think, uh, this long to really be ready to really move um, imaging to the cloud. Okay. And so th- they were kind of plowing their f- they were plowing their track, so to speak, and everyone else was sort of like, wow, you guys are crazy. We're not ready for this. And now it's sort of everyone's caught up. Is that kind of the vibe? Well, you know, there's there's been regulatory issues around the cloud. You know, there's okay. obviously patient, patient confidentiality issues, yeah. right? So there, there's been, you know, the, the industry had to catch up. I mean, I've been through this now in, in several different spaces where, you know, the, the regulatory environment's got to catch up with the technology. Um, yeah. In some markets like the UK, uh, no problem. In other markets, it's still kind of a gray area. Uh, whether you can really host like a, a multi-tenant cloud system where you have a, a platform and you're running multiple customers on okay. the same platform, like a SaaS service. Um, and so this has been really successful in the UK. The other bit is you have to have viewing technology that doesn't require 
proprietary software. It can just run on the web on any device. Right. It's kind of like Netflix. You don't have to load special software for Netflix. Yeah. Uh, it just streams the bits across. And that's really important because it also helps with regulatory issues because you're not shipping confidential patient data around. It always stays in the server in a secure facility. Um, yeah. And you're just streaming the visual part of the image across the wire. And so, yeah. um, so th these companies were really pioneers um, in these technologies. And this is really where we have a leadership position. Um, and what we're doing now is taking the company, uh, the companies were primarily in the UK and they've expanded in over 18 countries. Oh, nice. uh, and now we're launching into the US. Great, okay. Yeah, so I think just to go back a couple of steps for the benefit of everyone listening, one of the things that, that Brian's done, and it's a similar approach that we've taken at PopDoc and many other people, which is if, by, by keeping as much of your technology, if you like, and patient data in the cloud, in a singular cloud location, and restricting what gets sent down to someone's individual device, whether it's a computer or a phone or tablet, you're able to maintain um, uh, traceability and control over the the aspects of what you do which are regulated and contain sensitive information as opposed to a system where you know which will probably all remember where you had to download a particular piece of software onto your local machine to then be able to do something with it then the files are stored locally or some copy of the files are stored locally that program may need to be updated you know, you may not be running the latest version of it, which may alter, et cetera. It may not contain the latest algorithms or whatever it happens to be. All of that creates a regulatory nightmare. Whereas if you can maintain one copy of everything, one database in, in the cloud, that makes everything a lot more simple, right? Yeah, so I can give you an example. So obviously, as you're, you know, one thing you have to do is quality control, right? So you want to yeah. audit some percentage of the images, say maybe 3% or 5%. And by using automation and workflow, right, we can do this in a completely anonymous way, right? We can strip out all the patient data. We can, we can strip out all the, pri the primary uh, reporting information and just send this record anonymously to a second uh, specialist who can basically do a peer review, right? And, and essentially do a quality control. And then we can, in the cloud, compare those two assessments and figure out how accurate it is, and if it doesn't need to be adjudicated by by a specialist or an expert, right? And yeah. you can do all that because you can strip away all the, the the confidential information and make that process completely anonymous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes total sense. Like you don't. It's a, in a you know similar way. The the images of our test PocDoc test are stored, and they're just an image of a lateral flow test. There's no patient data in that image. So you know, I think it makes a lot of sense to be able to because radiologists they just need to see an image. Right? They don't need to see necessarily all of the patient data, metadata, any of those type of things. Obviously, at some point, that has to end up with a clinician or a physician that can deal with that stuff. But you don't need that to be able to look at the scan and say what you think is going on. So what, what's exciting for us, and I think this is the opportunity, as you said, kind of the state of the industry is moving to the cloud. It's not easy, right, for customers, for hospitals, for clinics to kind of rip out legacy infrastructure. So we try to layer our software on top. And we become the glue that integrates these legacy systems, uh, disparate MRI uh, machines, disparate uh, patient databases or storage systems together. But it also becomes a point where we can layer additional innovation. We talked about image enhancement, AI tools. Uh, we talked about things like automated work, work uh, flow processes like peer review. 
you can now accelerate the adoption of innovation in the medical field, right? And that's that for us is what's really exciting is as we can we can get the, the platform up and running, we can provide that connect connectivity, then we can accelerate the introduction of, of new technology. Yeah. And then I think that gets very exciting because now we can really leverage that cost curve we were talking about before. Yeah, I think that this is a good, you know, every now and again, I have a chuckle about this idea that, you know, the NHS is getting privatized and, and things like that. And the, the reality is, is that that does people that say that don't necessarily, I don't know whether they know or, or realize that like the NHS, there's a huge amount the NHS cannot do for itself. So the, MRI, the NHS does not make MRI machines. It, it buys them from private contractors who have their own software and innovations such as yourself and, and all the other people that we've had on the show for the most part, obviously private businesses that are working with the NHS and the NHS chooses to work with them because the NHS can't do those things for itself. Um, you know, in this instance, it isn't going to be able to develop its own cloud-based system and it's not a good use of its resources to do that either. You know, so I think it's really, um, I think it's just another example of how external, of, of why external innovation can be used to help an, a national system or, or any healthcare system. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a hand in glove type of thing because obviously the NHS needs to set the priorities and needs to it needs to figure out what kind of capabilities are needed at what capacity. But ultimately, you have to bring the resources together, right? And you know, I, I think it's an interesting partnership between public and private that can make that happen. And obviously, you've got to find the right balance. And in different countries, there's different approaches. Some are much more public, some are more private, some are really hybrid. I think the key, though, is you really want one to motivate providers, right, to really jump into the market, uh, to be well trained. But also, you want to also motivate technology companies to bring new technology into the market, right? That can drive yeah, you have to. innovative diagnostics and services and lower yes. costs and all the things you talked about before. That, that, yeah, there has to be incentive for, for businesses and individuals to dedicate themselves to bringing innovation into healthcare. There has to be. And like with, you know, and there's always, a, some people have a view that capitalism is bad and some people have a view that public healthcare is bad, but I think it's really how do you get the best out of all these worlds and work together, right? And, yeah. and I think if, if the mission is clear, and the, the direction and the priorities are clear, and there's a regulatory framework that allows us all to compete in a healthy way, then I think you can have that innovation. But like we talked about at the beginning, we got to get over the adoption barriers that are inherent with the legacy systems and the friction and the inertia so that we can move to the cloud and get all the benefits of AI and, and uh, automated workflow um, that can be available um, in, in the medical market. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, I, I completely agree. So we are coming into the final few minutes of the show. So what I kind of like to do here, Brian, normally is sort of try and get more of the personal kind of aspect of, of your journey. Like, so how, how did you come to end up being involved in this in this business and leading this business? Yeah, so I'm, I want to give you the, I guess, the 30-second version. So so I'm a, I've been a technologist for decades, uh, primarily in the internet cloud space. Started off um, as a product person with a phone company uh, several decades ago. Got into the in internet space, internet email. Uh, joined a, a startup. Uh, became a general manager. So moved to kind of the business side and managed the P&L. Uh, moved out to Europe. I'm a New Yorker. Moved out to Europe. Uh, built out 18 countries. We took a company public and then sold it. And so that was an amazing experience. 
Um, and then I started becoming an angel investor myself um, and getting involved as an entrepreneur um, and then learning how to build companies either as an advisor, investor, or an operator. Mm-hmm. And along the way, um, I moved to Berlin with my wife and my family. I started a cycling club for entrepreneurs, and I met the founder of, of Meneo, uh, which is a, a very large MRI center operator in Germany and in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were looking for a search for a CEO that knew enterprise technology, enterprise software, and um, it seemed to be a good fit. So I joined the company about 18 months ago. Oh, that's a great story. How was your kind of transition into healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I had a little bit of a background because I ran a, a caregiver marketplace for the last four years in Germany. So okay. um, there was some exposure to it. And a lot of the, the lessons I learned in moving large images around an email, uh, right. dealing with all schools of freelancers and some other lives, uh, apply really well to radiologists and uh, resources and things like that. But, you know, it's a nice it's nice to be learning and to challenge yourself. And uh, obviously, there's a whole new set of issues learning about uh, obviously a very technical field, but a, a field that is life and death. Um, and yeah. the stakes are much higher. Yeah. Um, and we've got two more minutes before we have to cut off. So very quickly, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs in the health tech space generally? What's kind of got you through? Yeah. So I, I think one is obviously, you know, you need to have passion about a problem, right? So somewhere in your life, you're exposed to a problem and it has to be big enough to worthy your time and your attention, right? Uh, the second thing is you you have to have an approach that drives innovation. And, and so, you know, I used to do a lot of advisors for like startup boot camps and things like that. And you have these really smart kids, but they don't have a great idea. And right. sometimes you need to go into the market and learn how it works, join companies like ours and more established companies just to learn about the challenges, the problems, the solutions and build a, you know, build a perspective, but also maybe a network um, in the space. And then I think you start seeing the pain points because in every industry, there's so many pain points um, and something that really tickles your fancy. And you say, hey, wow, I have a lot of passion around solving it. So I think finding a problem worth solving um, is the trickiest thing, but the most important thing for any entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, look, Brian, I, I completely agree with you. And on that note, thank you very much for coming on the show. Brian um, Plakis Cheng from OpenRad. And um, thank you to everyone for listening. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for having me. Don't know what you got until it's gone Already